The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. And welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am James Birch, and with me is Father William Jenkins of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Welcome, Father. Thank you, Jim. It's good to see you again. Tonight we are going to uh, continue to take on some of our viewer questions. We've received uh, many very good questions, and uh, we want to try to answer as many of them as we can. So the first question that we have tonight is, there have been issues made uh, of the validity of the consecration of bishops and by extension the validity of the ordinations of many priests. Um, I have the impression that it makes a functional difference in the efficacy of the sacraments administered by the priests. Um, what is your perspective on this question, Father? Well, a functional difference uh, is an understatement. Of course, if a priest's ordination is invalid, uh, he cannot function as a priest with specific priestly powers. He couldn't validly consecrate the Blessed Sacrament uh, or offer Mass, therefore. He could not uh, validly absolve from sins. Um, of course, a layman, uh, even a non-Catholic, can validly baptize, as you know, uh, could not validly administer the sacrament of extra-unction. And... Uh, <clears throat> So, of course, it does have a, a very serious functional, uh, functional consequence in whether a man is a priest or not. Um, there is a, a serious question with regard to the validity of the new rite of, uh, of consecration to the episcopacy, and uh, also a serious question with regard to the uh, validity of the new rite of ordination to the priesthood as well. <clears throat> Pope Pius XII, uh, with his document uh, Motu Proprio called Sacramentum Ordinis in 1947, uh, laid down exactly what the necessary form, that is the words that must be ex said, and the th <clears throat> therefore the, the, the meaning of the sacrament that is expressed uh, by that formula for uh, ordaining deacons and ordaining priests and consecrating bishops. Uh, those uh, formulae, as laid down by Pope Pius XII, uh, have been considered uh, infall infallible statement of the Church. They use the necessary infallible language. Uh, Pope Pius XII invokes the authority of the Holy Apostles, St. Peter and St. Paul. And uh, so um, to change them it would be certainly rash. You know? Some people make a, make a serious mistake. Uh, they say, well, the Church does have certain powers to determine the specific wording of the formula of the sacraments. And in some cases, in the case of some sacraments, that's true. Uh, but the church itself does not have any power to uh, change the formula or to, to put the formula of a sacrament in terms that fail to express the meaning of the sacrament or even have a contrary meaning to the essence of the sacrament. And so when uh, we have the formula of words changed so uh, that they are mutilated and mangled and do not express, uh, I mean, after all, the, the, the idea of the church is that the sacraments 
must express what they signify and signify what they express. The sacramental rites must do that. And if they don't do that, <clears throat> then their validity is certainly at least in question, at, le at least doubtful. Uh, so we have uh, words changed in the ordination, uh, the modern ordination art of the priests. But it's not just a matter of the formula uh, or the formulae um, for ordaining priests, ordaining deacons, uh, consecrating bishops. It's the surrounding rite also. Uh, Pope Leo XIII made that very clear when he was addressing the question of the validity of the Anglican ordinations. And his decision was that the, ang uh, the ordination of Anglican, uh, Anglican clergymen was invalid, that they did not become priests, uh, that the Anglican ordination rite could not possibly make men priests, uh, not only because the words themselves <clears throat> of the formula uh, did not express the true meaning of the priesthood, um, but the surrounding rite uh, gave a meaning to those words, which was a very much non-Catholic meaning, and uh, therefore in no way could, could ordain Catholic priests uh, validly. Uh, so in the, in the modern rites also, uh, we have ideas that have been suppressed in the modern rite of the ordination priesthood, uh, as it came from, the, uh, uh, from Paul VI, uh, we have a, a rite of ordination of the priesthood which does not say to the uh, ordinand, receive the power to offer sacrifice for the living and for the dead, uh, always understood to be a, a direct statement by the ordaining bishop that he was conveying to the, to the ordinand the power of offering the sacrifice of the Mass. And uh, also the statement, uh, receive the power to forgive sins, was suppressed. And uh, this obviously was not really an oversight. I mean, th this was done deliberately. And so it was clear, as with the Mass, the new Mass, and other sacraments, that there was a deliberate attempt uh, to simply suppress the true meaning of the sacrament in favor of something alien, something different, something along the Protestant lines, um, the Protestant meaning of the word sacrament. Uh, merely as something that was a, an occasion of stirring up faith, but not actually giving the, God, giving the grace of God. Um, and so, with good reason, do we consider the sacrament of ordination to uh, holy orders, uh, notably to the priesthood and uh, to the episcopacy, too, um, uh, very doubtful in the new rite, because uh, even with the sacrament of, of um, or with the... Um, the ceremony for ordaining or consecrating bishops, that has been wholly changed from what was expressed by Pope Pius XII in, uh, in 1947. And as I say, I mean, even though the, the Church does have a certain uh, power to determine exactly the words of ordination, um, the church would have no power, no church would have any power, no one in existence, no creature would have any power ever to contradict Christ and what he gave the church. And if they were to change the formula to express an idea that was alien or simply fail to express the Catholic meaning of the sacrament, uh, then that would render the sacrament null and void. 
Interesting that you, you talked about the uh, Anglican Church because um, after uh, Henry became the head of the Anglican Church and there were validly ordained priests who, who followed him, mm-hmm. the, the right, if I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't the right for ordinations changed at that some point uh, yes, after that? And, uh, but it was changed specifically to void the idea of a sacrificing priesthood. And um, after a generation or two of priests had gone through that rite, they were trying to even correct that. And the, the church said, no, the, no, you can't, even if you correct it now, it's too late because the priests and the bishops now in the Anglican Church are not validly mm-hmm. ordained. So they, even if you change it to the correct ordination procedure, mm-hmm. since they were not validly ordained, they cannot ordain either. Certainly. And it wasn't just a generation or two, in fact. Um, remember, all of this took place in the early 1500s. And it wasn't until um, the, the later 1800s that Pope Leo XIII actually made the ruling on that. So uh, there were, you know, in the Anglican Church, it's hard to actually call it a church because you have such a variety. Uh, you have the, the broad church and you have the high church. And the high church retaining many elements of Catholicism or Catholic ceremony, the Catholic ceremonial. And the low church being as kind of radical liberal Protestants, you know. And yet they're considered to be all part of the Anglican communion, you know. Um, that is ecumenism taken to a, the nth degree there as uh, Vatican II is pushing us now with uh, Francis and the, the conciliar church that came out of Vatican II. But in any case, uh, it was actually uh, a couple of hundred years had passed, and there was an effort in the uh, high Anglican church, among the high Anglican clergy, to identify themselves as being essentially Catholic, really, like Anglo-Catholic, you know. And so the question came up, well, what about the validity of the, of the orders that the, the high, even the high Anglican vicars had received? And his ruling was precisely, as you say, that they had lost the uh, continuity of the holy orders, so those bishops were not bishops anyway. Even if their bishops had used the Catholic rite, they couldn't validly consecrate because they were not bishops in the first place. They had no power to give. And, uh, and uh, so... On that right, too, uh, even apart from the ceremony itself being defective, um, even if the ceremony itself had not been defective, their orders would have been considered invalid anyway because the power of orders had simply died out within a generation. Uh, As soon as they began using the new right that they had developed there, uh, probably very similar to the Novus Ordo right, then they, they were losing uh, the validity of the holy orders that they had actually received from the Catholic Church before they, the Anglicans, broke away. Are we uh, seeing a parallel to that now in the Novus Ordo Church? I mean, we now have our first, is it our first pope who was, not, who was ordained and consecrated in the new rite? Francis is the first uh, of, the, of the new order popes, you know. Uh, let's face it, he's, he's the Pope of the New Order. Mm-hmm. He's their Supreme Pontiff of the New Order. And um, he was the first one who was ordained and consecrated within the New, new Order, with their New Order rites, which would uh, render him, well, we would have to say at least very dubious, very doubtfully, even a priest, let alone a bishop, 
let alone the Bishop of Rome, let alone the valid Pope, you know. There's a real doubt there. Um, there are those who claim, well, we can't doubt these things because it came from the church, but that's begging the question. Our question is, look at the ceremonies in the light of tr perennial traditional Catholic teaching, assess them that way, and then go and say, how does this reflect on the authority that gave them, and raises the question, where did these rites come from? Because they are so suspect. Because they were devised as a departure from Catholic tradition. And in many ways, uh, were purged of the traditional Catholic meaning of the sacrament. This raises into, into, into doubt, certainly, the authority behind them. Because Christ cannot himself authorize an invalid sacrament, <clears throat> a sacrament which is damaging to the church, which destroys the meaning uh, the, the church is teaching about the sacrament. Christ himself cannot give that authorization. So <clears throat> if those who introduced these new rites could not, were not speaking with the authority of Christ, by whose authority were they speaking? Who was behind these new rites if it wasn't God himself? <clears throat> I think the answer is rather obvious, sir. <laughs> uh. um, our next question has to do um, with um, apparitions, and uh, with, with the apparitions, the uh, question that, that comes out of that um, is uh, twofold. And to begin with, what is the Church's teachings on uh, needing to be careful about apparitions? Well, the Church herself uh, has shown that uh, private revelations are to be regarded with a great deal of caution. Okay? Uh, there is public revelation which came to a close with the death of the last apostle, St. John, about the year 100 AD. And after that, all revelations, and God does continue to reveal to individuals here and there uh, at various times, he, he continues to reveal his will to people here on earth. Uh, but these are private revelations. And the church has had much experience with this, but people claiming to have revelations of various things. Perhaps uh, her caution is also fueled by uh, the appearance of apocryphal writings in the early centuries that claimed to be writings of St. Peter, uh, St. Thomas the Apostle, and so on, St. Mary Magdalene, even Judas, some saw the gospel according to Judas. And the church has had to uh, invoke the authority that Christ himself bestowed upon her to rule these things as a spurious, not divinely revealed at all, <clears throat> uh, and not divine revelation. So the church um, has had to deal with uh, supposed seers and uh, locutionists and so on for a long, long time, those who claim to be either maliciously or simply misguided, you know, in my misguided fashion, souls who believed that they were receiving some messages from God and, in fact, they were not. But, nonetheless, there are, uh, in fact, communications from God, revelations that are given privately to individuals. They do not reveal any new truths about God, about ourselves. Uh, they're not truly divine revelation in, in the sense that Christ spoke and the apostles then were led by the Holy Ghost to reveal to the world. But there are messages from heaven. And uh, the church has told us that she herself, by her apostolic authority, must rule on whether these things are authentic or not. 
And generally speaking, uh, if you look back in history, you find the church does not uh, say, yes, uh, this nun in this convent received a revelation from God, and we put the authority of the heart church behind it. This is authentic. It is a revelation from God and must be accepted by all the Catholic faithful. No. What the church will decide is, <clears throat> we've investigated this thoroughly, and we find no reason for disbelieving it, and we find great reason for believing this is credible and worthy of belief. <clears throat> so the church ruled with regard to Fatima, for example, Our Lady's words at Fatima, that this was certainly credible, was entirely according to Catholic faith, and was worthy of belief. Uh, by saying that, she doesn't anathematize anyone who doesn't believe it. Um, she doesn't say, well, you've denied the gospel, you've denied the revelation of Christ, and therefore you're anathema, you're a heretic. No, the church doesn't say that. Uh, actually, the word heresy is thrown around very freely by people, much too freely. And it, as though the church doesn't even have a definition of heresy. But the church has this, a very clear definition of what heresy is, in her Code of Canon Law of 1918, she expels out exactly what heresy is. And uh, when you point that out to people and you tell them what the definition of heresy is, they realize, oh, well, I guess I better be careful how I use the word because, you know, I, I, mean, I can't say that just because somebody disagrees with, disagrees with me, they're a heretic. You know? can, can come to that sometimes. Um, so the church doesn't say that if we, if we don't accept a private revelation, that that makes us a heretic, because these are not defined dogmas of faith. Uh, generally, they have to do uh, these private revelations with a need of the Catholic faithful in this time, at this day and age, where God is speaking to us and telling us um, through our, our Lord appearing, through our Blessed Mother appearing, uh, through one of the saints coming to us, uh, maybe St. Peter, St. Paul, in the course of the centuries, and telling us how God sees the world and the, the church, the state of the church in this particular time, and giving specific directions as to what we are to do to meet a certain challenge or a certain need of the time. Take, for example, Our Lady of Fatima. Our Lady told us about the condition of the world and the condition of the church in her time, she was uh, actually addressing herself to Catholic souls, the souls of the faithful here on earth, and what they were to do. And she gave very specific directions. She said we were in very great danger of being punished severely by God. And uh, that was because of our sins, <clears throat> and notably our sins of impurity, and that we had to stop sinning and offending God. And we also, beyond that, had to be able to do penance to make reparation for the sins of the, of the rest of mankind who continued to sin. That we had to pray the rosary, specifically she mentioned the rosary, which is a meditation on the Gospels, and we had to um, consecrate ourselves to her Immaculate Heart. Um, and specifically she gave the direction that the Holy Father to come would be required to consecrate Russia to her Immaculate Heart. And when the, later on, when uh, the time came for that consecration to be made in 1929, she said the Holy Father, in union with all the bishops of the world, would have to make that consecration. So you see, here's a revelation that talked about the, the dire need of uh, the, the, the Catholic people to respond to a, a crisis situation in the world, in the church, and to take specific action 
in order to obtain God's mercy for mankind. And uh, generally, a private revelation is an appeal. Um, it can be even appealed to the world, but it is through the church, to the members of the faith, to uh, take certain actions of piety in order to uh, bring mankind, bring especially the souls of Catholics closer to God and avert some kind of catastrophe that we've earned because of our sins. Uh, that was actually a very good answer, Father, because... Uh, the question that was leading into that was, was about uh, why do we place um, trust in the three shepherd children from Portugal and Our, and Our Lady of Fatima. And you did a very nice job of explaining Well, the church that. said that what they said was credible, worthy of belief. Notice that when we talk about these private revelations, it's almost like there's a prophetic, prophetic voice here. In the Old Testament, God had prophets, okay? And he would raise up prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and so on. And they would speak and they would speak warnings to the people and telling them, look, this is the danger you're in. Uh, this is where you're heading. It is not good. This is going to end badly. Uh, you've got to stop this. And it's calling the people to repentance, reform. And so if we look at the role of private revelations uh, over the past 2000 years, that's exactly the role they fulfilled. Uh, like this prophetic voice continues. And often our Lord chooses um, not some powerful, eloquent orator or, or some great statesman, but he chooses the children. Uh, and when he sends someone from heaven, often in our own day, it's, it's his own mother you know, to, to plead with us, as a mother would plead with her children. Uh, and she is talking to her children. Perhaps God chooses these children because um, they are perfect messengers. Um, they will remember what is told them. They will not embellish on it. They will not read into it. They will not elaborate their own ideas. Uh, they will simply convey the message. And uh, so, so it was with the children of Fatima. They were very good messengers. Uh, they were told to keep the secret. And when they were told to reveal it, they revealed it. Well, the Lucy. So you're saying Lucy that did. Our Lady probably wouldn't appear to a lawyer to... Uh... Well, I, I, I don't know that she would or not, but I don't think she has. Uh, I'm not aware of any private revelations that have come through through law offices or law firms. Now, our, our very next question, interestingly enough, is from a, uh, a different viewer, but um, it kind of touches upon this, this topic a little bit in a different way. And that question is, if the Norvis Ordo Church is indeed a new church and a departure from the true church, and its validity is in question, how is it there are, that there are still Eucharistic miracles associated with it? Well, there are Eucharistic miracles associated with it. Associated with it. That doesn't mean they're real. Remember, the only one who can really uh, adjudicate that question, who can judge whether a Eucharistic miracle really is true or not, and really from God uh, himself, is the power of the church. But that's exactly what the question is right now. Um, by what authority is this Novus Ordo hierarchy speaking with its new, well, let's face it, they've, they've given us a new code of canon law, uh, which incorporates things that the church formerly would call sacrileges, um, has always considered sacrileges. Uh, it incorporates uh, not only uh, this kind of uh, new morality, uh, even when it upholds a moral law, saying artificial contraception is wrong, it doesn't enforce that. Um, 
Even when it says abortion is wrong, it's not enforcing that for the politicians and others who still go ahead and promote it. Uh, so even where it does uphold the traditional moral teaching, it doesn't enforce that uh, by the power of law and the power of uh, the executive, um, you know, penalties and so on. Um, it has broken, it has brought in the entire new form of worship, uh, new mass and all their new sacraments. Um, um, and suppressing very much the, the Catholic understanding of what these, this worship is all about. I mean, even in the new Mass, as I mentioned before, if we just take the offertory prayers of the new Mass, so-called, and put them next to the offertory prayers, prayers of the traditional Mass, one can see very clearly the, 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 the essential meaning of the traditional Mass and the essential meaning of the new Mass, and they are not the same. The essential meaning of the traditional Mass has been completely obliterated in the new Mass. The new Mass is simply a, pra a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Uh, whereas the traditional Mass, as is stated so beautifully and powerfully by the Council of Trent, is a sacrifice not only of praise and thanksgiving, it's a sacrifice of, of reparation for sin. It's a sacrifice of Calvary. That's, that's the essential difference between the new Mass and the traditional Mass. Uh, and, you know, as Cardinal Ottavi said, it's a striking departure from the... From the from the theology, the, the teaching of the church about the essence of the Mass, what the Mass really is. They brought an entire, entire order of worship, an entire new order of worship. And of course, they're changing, under Francis, they're changing the, the very power structure, the power, the authority structure of the church as it was established by Christ. Francis is, is completely uh, gutting the meaning of the papacy, eviscerating the meaning of the papacy and changing it into something totally different from what the church has always understood the papacy to be. So after dealing with uh, changing the meaning of the priesthood and changing the meaning of the, of the episcopacy, now they've gone right to the papacy and Francis is transforming that in his own image. And not, not what, it's not what Christ bestowed upon St. Peter. So you have that, that uh, essential change which goes completely against the, uh, the indefectibility of the church, which means the church cannot change substantially uh, in the course of time. It's impossible for the Catholic Church to undergo a substantial change um, from the founding by our Lord to the end of the world. It's impossible. But this is what the modernists are doing right now. And what they're producing is not another form of Catholicism. It is really uh, the Church of Modernism, which is like fundamental anti-Catholicism. Anti it's meant to be a replacement for Catholicism. It's meant to obliterate Catholicism, replace it, uh, as they originally tried to do with the traditional Mass. And they found they couldn't do it, so they brought in their indult Mass. But in any case, um, you know, I'm sorry, could you repeat that question? I want, to, I want to answer very specifically, having kind of laid all that down here. So the question basically is, uh, if the Novus Ordo Church is a new church and a departure from the true church, how is it that there are still Eucharistic miracles okay. associated with it? Well, you see, I, I'll just answer as I, as I see it myself. I consider them all very suspect. Uh, Satan mimics God. Uh, he's called the ape of God. Right? He will try to perform false miracles to lead people astray. Uh, one might as well ask, well, why are there stigmatists in Protestant religions? Is this Christ's way of saying that they also are perfectly Christian, perfectly, you know, on the same par with Catholicism, 
And uh, so you have stigmatics uh, who have the mark wounds of Christ, just as we have Catholic saints, like St. Francis, for example, uh, with the wounds of Christ. Is this not God's way of showing us that all of these different Protestant denominations really are fundamentally really Christian and all essentially the same and all please him and all ultimately lead to heaven? Well, uh, the answer to that is no. Uh, because Christ established one church, not uh, multiple churches, all teaching different things. Uh, Christ established Church of the Apostles and said that the Holy Ghost would guide them to uh, teach what that he had taught and keep the church on the right track. And uh, Protestantism is uh, actually a, a defection from that. So... Um, <clears throat> You know, we, we have to keep in mind with regard to this, this ecumenism idea, and I don't mean to get off track here, is that ecumenism is actually a very naturalistic way of looking at things. Not a supernatural way, but a natural way of looking at things. <clears throat> because the Catholic Church is teaching on natural religion and natural theology. Is that as human beings, we have the power of reason, and the power of reason can get to know about the true God as our creator. Uh, we have the ability to know that there is a God who created us, that we, we can actually, by the power of reason, begin to discern some of his attributes, you know, his infinity, the infinite power, his, his intellect and his will and his goodness, his unity, and so on. We can, by natural reason, learn these things. Um, Actually, Vatican Council I taught that dogmatically. It's a dogma of faith that this is true. But the problem is, though, that the power of reason is so darkened, we're kind of groping in the dark, and we can learn little by little over time with a great deal of error mixed in, and we can kind of piece together an idea, an idea of God and our Creator, and we can add truth to truth and reason from truth to truth. So it's kind of like a, a cumulative process where we build from <clears throat> error and then we add truth and we overcome error and we add truth. And so you have these very gradations. You have um, some more truth, less truth, more truth, less truth among all these different natural religions, see? That's kind of the ecumenist idea, that you have more truth, less truth, and <clears throat> they're all kind of relative, you know, uh, as to the different religions can learn from each other because they've discerned this truth about God, whereas that religion has discerned that truth about God. And you kind of put them all together and you get a mosaic of, of God, you know. Uh, that's what ecumenism is. This is what the modern uh, conciliar church is kind of pushing on us all. You know, We have a lot to learn from the non-Catholic religions about who God is and how he does things and so on. Whereas the Catholic understanding has always been this, that God has revealed himself to us, uh, not only through the prophets, but ultimately through his own son. The son of God has come here and taught us the true religion and given us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, in a religion that is the one true religion, because it comes from God himself. That God has bypassed you know, this natural struggle that we've had here to try to try to find him, like people groping in the darkness of our, of our thoughts and our limited intelligence. 
and has revealed himself to us. He's even revealed ourselves to us, you know, in revealing himself to us, uh, who we are. And <clears throat> the church doesn't look, therefore, as, uh, at that religion as though it's one of many Christian religions. The church doesn't look, therefore, as something that we've contrived or we've discovered for ourselves as a modernist do by our experiences over time discerning what God is like as, as the world passes on from one generation to the next, distilling down an idea of God. This is divine revelation, and there, there, there is all truth and no error in this religion, uh, in her dogmas and in her moral teaching. She is preserved from that by the special power of Christ who revealed this to us. Okay, So there's no place for this naturalistic ecumenism of the modernist in Catholic minds and Catholic hearts. And so um, we know that the, the teachings of the Catholic faith are revealed by Christ and we have to accept them and uh, we have to profess them without compromise uh, because they're the truth, again the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So uh, modern ecumenism approaches, I say modern ecumenism, approaches this whole question of religion in a very different, in a very naturalistic way, uh, which is completely contrary to the supernatural origin of our Catholic faith. Uh, we cannot accept this modernist re religion of ecumenism that Vatican II is voicing upon us, therefore. But um, when it comes down to uh, the, the question that the gentleman asks here about these, these private revelations or these Eucharistic miracles, as he's speaking of, therefore we as Catholics have to look at them as, as at least very suspect because we have to say, well, a miracle like this would be an act of God. If it is an act of God, then if the message here is that God is endorsing this religion and saying that, it doesn't really matter to him what religion you follow, whether you follow the religion he himself brought to us or he himself revealed to us. But you can follow what is a false religion uh, because it has deviated from that, the, the fullness of truth that Christ has given, and is a denial of the principle of faith, which is accept the teachings of God through Jesus Christ on the authority of God revealing, and says, even in one case, well, we'll believe something else than what the church teaches because it makes more sense to us or we find it more acceptable than what the Catholic Church teaches. You've just broken the whole idea of what faith is, accepting something on the authority of what God has revealed through his apostles and down through the ages through his church that he established. Even if you depart from one dogma of faith, you've broken the whole idea of what faith is. Uh, an acceptance of truth on the basis of the authority of God revealing it in favor of something else. You know? So um, we cannot believe that these things come from God. If there is something going on here that is above the natural, therefore, if there is a stigmatic who, uh, let's say, is among a religion, a religionists of those who deny the Catholic faith, and therefore what Christ has actually revealed, then that cannot be a supernatural manifestation. It could be a preternatural manifestation. It could be the work of, uh, of Satan himself. It could be the work of human hysteria. It could be a fraud. It could be any number of things. 
Um, but it is not, certainly not from God, as an endorsement of that false religion. Well, in fact, even in Scripture, we have examples uh, of false priests uh, performing miracles. I mean, when Moses went to the Pharaoh, right, he threw down his, rod, his staff and they turned into the serpent and then the false priest right. did the same thing and his staff ate the, the other serpents. Moses' his staff devoured the staff. Right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. I mean, this was known as sorcery. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the ancient peoples, they, they, they had sorcery. Uh, St. Paul says the gods of the pagans are devils. And so, I mean, the devils have these powers. They're natural to, to, to angel, fallen angels to have such powers to do these things. You're right. And even in the Catholic Church, I mean, the Church has discerned very often that this stigmatic was not really a stigmatist at all. Uh, that this teacher, that I mean, there have been nuns in cloistered convents who've been turned out to be frauds. And the Church has, has unveiled them to be frauds before the whole world said, look, this religious and this convent here has claimed to receive messages from God and it is the Catholic Church itself that has unveiled this fraud and says and denounced it as such. So if among even Catholics and apparently devout Catholics we find um, false manifestations like this, either due to some human psychological issue or even some diabolical um, uh, invention, some diabolical intervention, then certainly outside the Catholic faith, when we see something like this happen, we have to be very suspicious that there's something, if there is something above the natural happening here, then it is not uh, from God, but it's from some other sinister source. Well, our next question tonight, Father, has to do with uh, canonization. And um, it, it uh, has to do um, with, well, I'll read the question here for you. If uh, a pontiff's behavior during uh, his time in office was undoubtedly materially heretical, and therefore we can certainly have doubts about his faith, can he become a canonized saint as such? And should Catholics revere him as the saint in heaven? And I do believe they're talking uh, probably about uh, Pope uh, John the John the twenty third. Twenty third. Yes, Pope John the twenty third. John Paul II. And John Paul the second. Correct. Yeah. Well, in fact, uh, traditional Catholics, I think generally, I mean, at least from those who've expressed their thoughts to me, do not regard John the Twenty-Third or John Paul II as saints. <clears throat> uh, Francis has, has canonized them, but uh, the, the process of canonization has been thoroughly, uh, uh, what should I say, uh, naturalized in the sense that uh, what the church looked for was at one time for actually absolutely undeniable miracles, indisputable miracles. Um, and then that was changed to two, and then it was reduced to one, and then even that can be ignored. There's no need for that. And the modern church has bent over backwards to try to find some miraculous manifestation of the holiness of John the 23rd, some miraculous manifestation of the sanctity of John Paul II, bent over backwards. Uh, there's even a case where, uh, I think it was with John the 23rd, they said that he had, had cured someone, or some nun claimed to be cured of a disease by John the 23rd, and uh, no sooner had they pronounced it a miracle that she was cured, but she, she relapsed and came down with the disease again. 
So, um, you know, they're trying to keep the body of John Twenty-Third preserved as, and possibly John Paul II, I don't know, but they, they, uh, they've encased John Twenty-Third's body in three shells of, uh, of acrylic material and, and pumped in argon gas, an inert gas, to keep trying to preserve his body from corruption. It reminds you of the communist efforts to preserve the body of Lenin. Uh, in Red Square, you know, I mean, it's it's macabre almost what they go through to try so hard to um, to establish the sanctity and the divine approval, therefore, of what these men did to the church in their so-called reformation. But it really was a revolution. And uh, if they were, they were holy and the saints they were, they then the modernists would not have to go to these extreme lengths to try to mimic sanctity. The fact that they're even going through these lengths to mimic sanctity shows that they understand that there's not really sanctity here, but we have to somehow, uh, uh, we have to somehow put on a show of sanctity so we can get people to accept the new religion and the divine origin of the new modernist religion of Vatican II. So, uh, no, uh, traditional Catholics understand that the, the, the canonization process has been perverted by the modernists. And uh, even, when they, even when they canonize someone who may well be a saint in heaven, I mean, I personally believe that Padre Pio is a, is a saint in heaven right now. Uh, Oliver Plunkett, uh, whom they made a blessed into, from a blessed into a saint, but they, they use them. They abuse even the, the holy souls, uh, the church has known, that the former, that I should say the traditional Catholic church has formed. I mean, blessed Oliver Plunkett was, is a saint in heaven because he, he was a saint of the true church, the true Catholic church. Padre Pio was a saint of the true church, not the modernist church. He never said the Novus Ordo. And um, they allow have to lay claim to him as though he's an endorsement of them and their false religion. Um, but the fact is, they take those, uh, Padre Pio, and they take uh, Blessed Oliver Plunkett, who lived 500 years ago, and they twist their, their memories to serve their modernist purposes. For example, Oliver Plunkett, when he was canonized by the Novus Ordo, was hailed as the patron saint of ecumenism, Okay the patron saint of these meaningful dialogue with the other religions where we can learn from them and they can learn from us and we can be one big happy family and ignore the differences as though they were not really that important. Blessed Oliver Plunkett stood on the scaffold in Scotland and uh, when he was asked by the Protestants to pray with them, <clears throat> he said no, he will not pray with them. They pray their way and he will pray as a Catholic. And then when they asked him, where do you want to be buried? He said, I will not be buried in one of your Protestant ceremony, uh, cemeteries. Bury me in the field with the birds, you know, who are more Christian than you. And, um, and they name him the patron saint of ecumenism. What an insult that is to him. But this is what they do. But if they will insult our Lord at their, in their new ceremonies, if they will insult him with what they've done, why wouldn't they insult the blessed Oliver Plunkett? Why wouldn't they insult the Padre Pio? by trying to uh, make them sort of flagships for their Novus Ordo religion and sullying their memory as they do. So, uh, you know, this brings to mind uh, <clears throat> something that I, I was told when I was a seminarian. In, uh, uh, in the early days of my seminary existence, um, 
at a very conservative, I would say, still traditional, because we still kept the traditional mass, even after the new, the new order was first announced. Uh, I was told by a, a young fellow who was working there on the property, he was a very devout young guy, um, probably oh, four or five years my senior, uh, about a Eucharistic miracle, to actually to refer back to the previous question or two, that had taken place. Um, this was in the early years of the Novus Ordo. And uh, this young man said that uh, in some parish nearby in California, there was an account of the priest saying the Novus Ordo, and all of a sudden stopping and in astonishment, uh, staring down at the table where he was saying the Novus Ordo. And then he, he held up the corporal. The corporal is that white linen cloth where you put the host, you know. And he held up the corporal, and when he held it up, it was all tattered and torn, like a rag. He held it up before the people to see of what had happened to the corporal. And he said, and you know, look, you know, this shows, this shows the reality of the sacrifice we're offering here, you know. And this young man accepted that interpretation, that, see, this proves the validity of the Novus Ordo. And now, you know, if you heard a story like that, would that, if it were true, if you believed it were true, would you say that that anyway proves the validity of the Novus Ordo? Or would you not say that this is a sign from God, that this is an abomination, <laughs> that this is like the tearing and the rending of the church and the destruction of the sacrifice? Uh, well, I, I think that interpretation it would probably be a, a bit more applicable in this case. But you see, their interpretation of it has a lot to do with it. Um, who knows if there was any truth to it? I mean, he was just relating the story, which he believed, obviously. If you begin to follow it up, these reports, you probably begin to find that there's no foundation for these reports, that they are just uh, word-of-mouth embellishments or just downright lies uh, to create a certain fascination. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people who are claiming now they have revelations from God of all kinds around the world, and uh, a lot of them are simply money-making schemes to prey upon the credulity of the poor faithful who are basically left uh, like sheep without a shepherd right now, spiritually, you know. Um, but uh, I would say that if something like that did happen, it certainly didn't speak well for the Novus Ordo. I think it showed that the Novus Ordo is, is an abomination. And, um, and if, if it really were uh, something that could be interpreted as an endorsement of the Novus Ordo, that it would not be from heaven, it would be from hell. Um, the same uh, matter here with the question of the, con uh, the Canonization. canonizations of the saints there. They consistently use these canonizations to push this modernist idea of religion, which has to do with a complete not only change of the, of the nature of the Catholic Church, but the complete subversion of the meaning of religion, of the word religion. And Pope Pius X, St. Pius X in his encyclical Bashendi said that this is what modernism does. It not only undermines the foundations of the Catholic faith, um, it perverts the very meaning of faith, just faith, and it destroys the meaning of religion. 
Um, so, again, uh, if the devil is behind uh, the changes in Vatican II, we should not be surprised to find that he will use diabolical means to try to endorse uh, Vatican II and try to make it appear as though it is from God and though, as though it is something holy. And it goes back, right, to uh, whether it's the canonizations or the supposed miracles. The, the Catholic Church is, is the uh, only authority on, on both of those issues. And um, once again, if you're looking at who the head of the church is now, um, and if that's... Uh, if there's issues there with the, with the people who are, are taking have taken over the church and are leading it in the wrong direction, and they're the ones who are making these proclamations, mm. then it, it's pretty doubtful. Right, right, exactly. I mean, if they are, well, I mean, it's it's like a president of the United States who would uh, to uh, like endorse his own point, uh, start bringing up, let's say. Oh look, uh, the uh, unemployment is going down, the economy is going up, and, uh, and it's all fake. Mm -hmm. It's falsified uh, statistics, and uh, you know, bring up somebody who can report. Oh, I had this experience, and it was because of this wonderful healthcare system I've got now that has saved me from a fate worse than death. They will bring up these endorsements, you know. And so, why wouldn't a politician who becomes, let's say, the Pope of the Novus Ordo, um, who will play to the crowds? Uh, play to the favor, uh, the favor of the powers that be in the world. Uh, why would why would he not do the same thing? You'd have to expect him to do the same thing. Hey, look, Satan, first Sunday of Lent, taking our Lord to the high mountain, offering him the glory of the world. If he'll just fall down and adore him, um, Satan thinks nothing of, uh, you know, trying to impress us with his displays, and then offering us the world if we'll just give him our souls in exchange. No wonder our Lord said, "What is the profit of man?" To gain the whole world, it loses his own soul. That was the proposition that was offered to our Lord in the third temptation uh, that we read on the first Sunday of Lent. Um, but Satan will, will use his power to, you know, take us from the desert to the top of the temple to the top of the mountain. And uh, yes, I mean, he has the power to do that. But we shouldn't be deceived by it. If he's endorsing something that is contrary to the faith is contrary to Christ, and that is not of God. Uh, to take us in a little different direction with our next set of questions here, I'm going to uh, try to paraphrase, a, a extrapolate a question uh, from our, our viewers' questions here to, to start with, because I think it will help in answering uh, his two more specific questions. And that is, um, in, in the times we live in where uh, modern Rome um, is um, possibly... Uh, apostatized uh, from the faith, um, is anyone who's affiliated with it or desiring affiliation with Rome, for example, uh, the Society of St. Pius X, suspect of being non-Catholic? Uh, well, I would have to say there's certainly an error if they are looking to try to wed Catholicism with modernism. This cannot be. Uh, Catholicism uh, cannot be wed with... Uh, just what is intrinsically anti-Catholic, right? Uh, any more than Christ would somehow uh, be uh, united with what is anti-Christ, right? Uh, what uh, connection can there be between God and Belial, as they say in the scripture? There can't be, all right? Uh, so the whole notion of trying to get back in the good graces and be accepted 
by the powers that, uh, of the Novus Ordo and the Novus Ordo religion that have wrought this havoc and this, this crisis and this, this terrible damage to the church and, the soul, and souls, the damnation of souls, to try to say, we must find a place in that organization is basically playing the ecumenism game. They're saying, okay, that church wants to be in communion with the Orthodox and the Lutherans and the Methodists and eventually the Zoroastrians and the Buddhists and the Muslims and so on, and keeps professing to be partially in communion with all of these insofar as they have truths that they hold in common and all worship the same God somehow. And we want to find our place in that same pantheon. Uh, the whole idea is, is, is blasphemous to even suggest such a thing. How they can possibly uh, try to find a, a niche in that, in that church, uh, the Nova Soto Church, uh, where they can be comfortable and be Catholic, traditional Catholic, uh, well, under that, you know, under the same roof and just down the, the, the way there uh, is, you know, Buddha. And over here is Mohammed. Well, they can't show Mohammed, so it's an empty niche, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so on. It's, it's beyond me how they can even, even think of doing that, you know, uh, with a straight face uh, and with, a, with a, a, an integral heart. I don't understand it. Um, so, um, would it make them non-Catholic? No, it just could make them very seriously mistaken. You know, perhaps they really don't understand the nature of modernism, although they really should, because Pope Pius X, St. Pius X laid it out perfectly. And, uh, and Francis is the incarnation of the condemnation of modernism. It really is as though, uh, Francis, uh, uh, at some point in his life, sat down, read Pascendi of Pope Pius X, and said, okay, this is what Pius X condemned. This is what exactly what I've got to do. He's following it like a script, perfectly, doing everything that St. Pius X condemned the modernists for doing and being. Um, so there's no mistake about it. I mean, he's, he's the quintessential modernist. Um, how um, uh, the Society of St. Pius X could gain acceptance by that so that it could be considered part of that um, is, in my mind, absolutely atrocious. That's as outrageous. I think anyone who would pursue that would be pursuing the destruct total destruction of the societies in Pius X. And I think this is a diabolical enterprise to completely derail the society of St. Pius X and all the souls tied, tied into it. Um, and, but, but why would the devil stop where he did? I mean, he, he doesn't say, okay, well, I've had the Novus Ordo, and I've led many souls astray, and so many, or the vast majority of Catholics do not have the real Mass anymore, do not have the real sacraments anymore, they're not getting the real doctrine anymore, they're being led down the primrose path of, of, of Catholicism, and so I've led, let's say, 90%, 95%, 99% of the Catholics astray with my modernist uh, pope, but, and so I'm going to quit here and let the rest of them go off and, and have their Mass and sacraments. His idea is to eradicate the Mass and the sacraments, okay? And eradicate Christ and put himself in that place. And so, of course, he's going to be attacking the Society of St. Pius X. Um, 
And this is exactly what he wants. This is where he turns next to try to derail that. Can he do it? Oh, yes, he certainly can. And what more ideal way than by uh, having that, uh, you know, follow right, right into the Novus Ordo and be absorbed right back into the Novus Ordo as just another, another group, another religious faction, another religious church even, uh, another flavor, let's say, of Christianity. Um, which is essentially exactly what it would become. <clears throat> so if the Novus Ordo wants to absorb or is going to find the Society of St. Pius X acceptable, if the Novus Ordo can swallow the Society of St. Pius X, <clears throat> it can do so with its Latin Mass. Okay? That's fine. It can have its Latin Mass. No problem. Even the traditional Latin Mass with the changes on the 23rd, the Novus Ordo can find a place for that. There's a niche for that, okay? And the Novus Ordo can find, okay, traditional sacraments, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, there's a place for it. We can, we can tolerate those. And um, all the ceremony and all this other stuff, Francis may say, ooh, you know, ooh, you know, the stench of the sheep, you know, he talk, the stench of the traditional, you know, to him, it makes him gag. And he wants no part of it, and he condemns it as fundamental uh, fundamentalists, you know, and they're, they're idolaters and so on. But nonetheless, okay, I mean, let's face it, they can have be ecumenist with Buddhists, right? And with Hindus, and they're idolaters, right? So why not traditional Catholics? Let Francis call them idolaters if he wants. He can still work something out with them. But they've got to give up the idea that there is one true faith, and that one true faith and that one true church are necessary for salvation. You give up those ideas, be traditional Catholic as you want. It's a matter of taste. You know, this is your style. This is what appeals to you. This corresponds to your experience of the divine in your life, okay? And that's fine as long as you just accept it as your own personal flavor of choice. So you like vanilla? Fine. You like strawberry? Fine. You like chocolate? Fine. This is your flavor. And uh, give up the idea that um, this is necessary for the salvation of all mankind, though. And the whole concept and practice, at least, of one true church necessary for salvation. And the Novus Ordo will embrace you like a brother and bring you right in the door and give you your niche in their Novus Ordo pantheon. Um, because you can fit right in with the one world religion. So, in any case, um, you know, we, we, uh, we have to be very careful about their manifestations of piety because the manifestations of piety are what really are the hook that get people to think, okay, well, we can be Catholic in the Novus Ordo. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the devout and those who still hold on to the vestiges of Catholicism in the Novus Ordo that give it the disguise of Catholicism. And they, they can draw people in uh, unsuspectingly uh, to actually depart from their Catholic faith. I fear that we're, we could be watching this happening to the Society of St. Pius X. We've got to pray that that doesn't happen. The question that, that follows then, um, if, if they've not fallen into the error of uh, being swallowed up by the Novus Ordo Church yet and and actually uh, saying that there, there is no one true faith and one and no salvation outside the church. Um, if they haven't fallen into that area yet, and even if they are trying 
uh, or not, I'm, I'm not sure, to be affiliated with Rome at this point. If uh, Assuming that the priests in the Society of St. Pius X are, are validly ordained, even if they're working on this affiliation at the moment, which would be an error, are the sacraments that they are performing still valid? Valid? Well, if they're validly ordained. Okay. If their priests are, are validly ordained, and they do perform the, uh, valid, validly the sacramental rites, and uh, uh, they could offer a valid mass and valid sacraments. The question of whether they'd be Catholic, right, uh, they'd be in union with the true Catholic Church, uh, is another question, the validity. Um, but I, I think, well, I, I think what we have to do, at least I, I believe it's necessary, is to uh, make the presumption uh, of their goodwill and their good intent that they believe they're doing what is the right thing to do, perhaps the necessary thing to do, to be faithful to Christ. I think they're wrong. I think they're misled. I think they're dangerously wrong. But if in pursuing the course that they've set out for themselves and, uh, you know, uh, ecumenism with the modern church, uh, I, I don't think that that makes them formally non-Catholic. And I do believe that there are dangers. I do believe people have to be aware of the dangers. I believe they're doing things that really are antithetical to Catholic practice um, and, and therefore dangerous. And I think people have to be aware of those things. But I don't think it's right to just uh, necessarily say, well, they're, they've simply uh, crossed the line. They're not Catholic. Their sacraments are invalid. Or if they're valid, they're not Catholic. And under no circumstances can you avail yourself of them. Uh, I would warn people, though, of the dangers of getting involved in the what I consider to be the, the theological um, pitfalls and mistakes they're making, um, and and how it can actually lead them to the wrong conclusions, which could eventually lead them out of the faith, even back into the Novus Ordo entirely, you know, and to embrace the Novus Ordo completely. Um, you know, again, I think it's the appearance of piety that poses the, the greatest threat, because that's like the bait in the trap. Remember what our Lord, uh, our Lord said uh, to those who came to him, saying, we want a sign from you. Our Lord had just driven the devil out of a man. He just exercised him, which is a work of divine power. You know? At one point, the Pharisees and Sadducees would say, well, it's by the power of the devil that he drives out the devil. And our Lord said, well, then the devil is divided against himself. We've got nothing to worry about because the devil is attacking himself. His kingdom will fall of itself. But our Lord said, it is not, of course, by the power of the devil, the devil is driven out. Uh, it is by the power of God. And our Lord even referred to it as the finger of God. You know, now, We even refer to the Holy Ghost sometimes by the imagery of the, the finger of God, you know, uh, through which God's power is at work. And uh, when... Our Lord had driven the devil out of the man. Uh, the, those around him, the Jews around him, were arguing <clears throat> whether this is of God or not. And so there were those who said, we demand a sign of you to show that you are of God. As though the exorcism wasn't a sign already, you know. And what our Lord answered them was very important. It's important for us to remember today. Our Lord said, a wicked and perverse generation demands a sign. Now, that applied to that generation. Well, it applied to this generation, too, I believe, every bit. But our Lord said, but no sign shall be shown to it except for the sign of Jonah. 
For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for those three days and nights, so the Son of Man, referring to himself, shall uh, repose in the earth for three days, three nights, and he shall rise from the dead. You know, He shall come out of the earth as Jonah rose out of that, what seemed to be certain death, you know, mm -hmm. be swallowed by the whale. And so <clears throat> our Lord made it very clear that no sign of this power is going to prove his divinity or is going to be given them, but the resurrection from that moment on, okay, that was the one sign that would stand over all the others, his resurrection. And uh, I personally think that we're in times that uh, <clears throat> uh, could be characterized exactly by what our Lord said there. A wicked and perverse generation and the only sign given the resurrection, I think, pictured in the shroud. I think the shroud is that sign of the resurrection here in our generation today. It's like the one argument that they, they, they can say all they want, you know, that uh, his, his followers came and sold the body away and all the rest, all the other excuses they give. But the shroud stands up to every one of those attacks and answers every one of those attacks with another mystery. That they, they're at a loss to explain it. In fact, there uh, are some videos... Uh, on the What Catholics Believe page about the Shroud of Turin. About the Shroud of Turin, that's right. They're very good uh, videos I recommend people Well, they tend to be older mm -hmm. videos, uh, but I still think that they do give enough information to really, you're, you're right, make that point. So the only sign, I mean, if this is the case, in any case, that will be given here in these times is that the sign of the resurrection of our Lord. So we don't necessarily expect among even traditional Catholics to find great works of wonder and miracles, you know. Our Lord, our Lord said, the Antichrist will come, and he will work signs and wonders, so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. That's what St. Paul says, uh, that it is the Antichrist who will be working these signs and wonders toward the end of the world. So for those who are looking for signs and wonders, they should now, these days, to give them an idea where... Uh, the truth really is, they have to be very careful because our Lord has already told us that in the latter days, in a wicked and perverse generation, the sign of the resurrection alone will have to stand. <clears throat> but there will be one who will be working signs and wonders in those latter days, and that will be the Antichrist. And if somebody is... Um, has a weakness in this direction, who needs this because of his weak faith. He's got to see those signs and he's got to see those wonders. <clears throat> he could easily be deceived by, by the Antichrist working, um, working these signs and wonders to deceive the elect. So we have, to, we have to cling to what we know is true from our faith. And uh, nothing, uh, even though it be the most spe spectacular display of power to the contrary, can oppress us in the slightest if it is something contrary to what Christ has taught, which the Holy Ghost has inspired the Church to teach through all these centuries. That remains the truth. And the Antichrist himself, with all of his apparent displays, uh, displays of power, will be blown away like a puff of smoke by our Lord, ultimately, when he comes to judge. We just have to be faithful in the meantime, regardless of who, of who contradicts the teaching of Christ and the teaching of his Church. Um, to wrap up uh, this, this viewer's question, um, he, he took it one step further, his questioning about um, 
what does this mean for the for the sacraments? And he was very specific about uh, confession for one, and uh, which really has already been answered because if a validly ordained priest give the sacrament of penance, then it would it would be valid. Um, but then the other question was about baptism, and um, and actually, uh, and maybe you could touch briefly upon this. Um, with baptism, you don't need a validly ordained priest to, to do a valid baptism. Uh, even in no, even a even a non-Catholic can perform a baptism, but they do have to do what is essential for a valid baptism. They have to pour the water uh, <clears throat> over the head, if possible, and they have to say the words, "I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost." Now, uh, in different rites of the church, Catholic, all Catholic rites in different languages and so on, uh, they, they do express the same thought in different words. That's true. If you look in the, uh, the, the Maronite rite and the um, Syro-Malabar rite and so on and so forth, you might find that they use different words to express that same thought about baptism. In one rite, Eastern rite, uh, the words are like an imperative, be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. They all express the same idea. So that would have to be expressed uh, for there to be the sign of the sacrament. But beyond the pouring of the water and the saying of the words signifying the meaning of what is being done, they would have to have a, a basic intention. And the most basic intention they would have to have is to do what the Catholic Church does. They may not be Catholic. They may not believe in what the Catholic Church does. They may not believe in baptism. They may not even believe in God. But the Church has said throughout the centuries that as long as they say, well, this is what the Catholic Church does, this is what this person wants, so I'm going to do this because the Catholic Church does this, that would be sufficient for a valid baptism. Well, Father, I thank you uh, very much for being here and answering all these questions for us well, tonight. Certainly. I, I know that I always give the best answers, but I give the best answers I have at the moment. Uh, I thank our... Uh, Correspondence for the questions that they ask uh, are very incisive questions. And uh, if you don't get the answer, uh, really, that you're looking for to the question, or you don't think I've answered directly the question, please go ahead and try again. And uh, I will try again as well. But I thank you for your perseverance in posing these questions, and I hope the answers are helpful. And um, we are doing our best to try to get to all of the questions. We, we still have some more. They're very good questions. Some of the questions are posed more as topics, which uh, we uh, will probably also get to in future shows, but it may take an entire show to, to touch upon some of these topics. So we've been trying to get through some of the uh, questions that uh, might allow us to get to more questions in one show. Um, if you do have any questions for us or, or uh, show topics you would like, um, or you'd just like some more information about the uh, traditional Latin Mass or the traditional faith, please feel free to email us. We thank you very much for uh, watching our show. We will be providing you with some more information also in uh, the future shows about how to obtain uh, some of the materials that we've been talking about uh, on the shows in the past. Um, I ask you now to please remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, uh, that we must pray, make sacrifice, and consecrate ourselves and our families to the Immaculate Heart. Thank you and God bless you.